So do you remember when you first heard about the coronavirus, about COVID-19? Maybe it was back in January, January 23rd, when China imposed a lockdown in Wuhan. Or maybe it was a week later, when the WHO declared a global health emergency. I'll be honest that despite the news reports and warnings, despite the calls to social distancing, the runs on toilet paper, the business closures, it didn't seem all that real to me. That is, until I heard this story from our own city about a man in his 40s who contracted the virus. Keith Elliott was in good health prior to March 12th. Elliott, who had not been traveling, went home sick from work that day, and his symptoms worsened from that point on. His wife, Dana, says she's never witnessed her husband in a worse condition. On Thursday, March 12th, Keith woke up with a sore throat. His symptoms worsened, but by that Saturday, Dana decided it was time to call 811 and find out if he should be tested. Based on his symptoms and the questions they asked, they figured that he hadn't been in contact and it wasn't really necessary. His condition continued to decline, and by Monday, though, March 16th, he was taken to an emergency room at Royal Inland. He saw a doctor and they checked him out, listened to his lungs, did an x-ray. They said he was clear. And based on what his symptoms were and the fact that his x-ray was clear, they figured it just was the flu. As a precaution, though, they took that COVID test. And the following Friday, the results came back positive. In the meantime, Keith had gotten worse. He was having sweats, shivering, and his body was just shaking, Dana said. He was groaning in his sleep, and he had a headache and a fever. His eyes were burning. He said his lungs were burning. Dana says it's time to take isolation, self-isolation seriously and be aware that the virus is in Kamloops. Did you ever imagine that we would be in this place? That we would be facing a pandemic in the BC interior? It's arrived. And no doubt... It's going to touch many of our lives. Today's gospel lesson is a couple of selections drawn from Mark chapter 13, the part of the Mark's gospel known as the Little Apocalypse. It is given this title because, like other apocalyptic literature, it focuses on the end of the way things are and the establishment of God's kingdom. It uses vivid symbolic imagery. And it doesn't just emulate other apocalyptic literature, but actually references other passages. Isaiah is quoted, and so is the book of Daniel, three times. Today's passage, as we heard from Keith, begins with a discussion of the temple. We are told that as Jesus walked away from the temple, one of the disciples commented, Teacher, Look at that stonework, those buildings. Now, if you know a little about history, you'll know that Herod the Great reconstructed the Second Temple in the decade following 20 BC, and it was one of Herod's many projects. 
He was an ambitious man. If you've been to Israel, think of the fortress at Masada or the port city of Caesarea. Well, the temple was the pinnacle of his architectural dreams. It took 10,000 men 10 years just to build the retaining walls around the temple mount. The western wall, known to many as the Wailing Wall, is merely part of a 500-meter-long retaining wall that was designed to hold a huge man-made platform that could accommodate 24 football fields. When it was completed, it was the world's largest functioning religious site. And until today, it remains the largest man-made platform in the world. But if that complex is large, then so are the pieces used to build it. The western stone is the biggest stone of the western wall in Jerusalem. It's recorded as one of the heaviest objects ever lifted by humans without mechanical assistance. The stone located in the wall's section north of Wilson's Arch is 13.6 meters long, 3 meters high, and has an estimated width of 3 meters. When Jesus was walking away from the temple, his disciples expressed awe at the complex. Teacher, look at that stonework. And Jesus replied, You're impressed by this grandiose architecture? Well, there's not a stone in the whole works that is not going to end up in a heap of rubble. You can imagine that after such a declaration by Jesus, the disciples would surely be astonished and would have lots of questions for their Lord. I mean, to see the immensity of the stones today makes it hard to believe in anything but permanence. And yet, all that is earthly will fade. I mean, how many of us would have believed that the Twin Towers would one day be erased from the Manhattan sky? Despite all the posturing of power and permanency, nothing earthly endures. In case you're wondering, as Keith mentioned, Jesus' prediction... His prophecy did prove to be true. In the year A.D. 69, one Roman emperor seated another, four in all, Nero, Otho, Vitellius, Vespasian, each time with violence, murder, and civil war. And as Vespasian made his way to Rome to receive the crown, his adopted son Titus entered Jerusalem, burnt the temple, destroyed the city, and crucified thousands of Jews. But if earthly kingdoms and monuments will all fade and disappear, what about that reign of God that Jesus promised? When will the Son of Man be exalted over all and receive his kingdom? Will that ever happen? If Jesus' promise about Jerusalem was fulfilled, then what about his reign? Well, Jesus told his disciples that there would be much waiting involved. Even before the destruction of the temple, there would be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, persecutions. But according to Jesus, this was just the beginning of the labor pains, the signs of a coming kingdom. 
after that, after all these horrible occurrences, history will one day be fulfilled. And it will be bigger, a bigger event than the visit of a member of the royal family or the arrival of a foreign dignitary. Instead of fireworks, there will be a meteor shower. The stars will fall from the sky. People will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Christ will claim his own. And yet for all that poetry, it's hard to imagine Jesus coming. The disciples struggled to envision the fall of Jerusalem. Many of us never dreamed that COVID-19 would reach our own town. But Jesus promised that the Son of Man will be victorious, that God's kingdom will finally appear in its fullness, that we will be liberated from a world that in so many ways is marked by darkness and evil. But what are we to do in the meantime? What are we to do while we're waiting for that Son of Man who is coming with great power and glory. Well, the passage tells us again and again to be on guard and to keep watch. Now, some people, and I grew up in the Pentecostal church, and this was an important element of of their sort of um, culture, or at least the culture of the church that I attended, lots of end-time speculation. Some people spend a lot of time poring over newspapers trying to connect world events with what Jesus foretold they should maybe read that passage a little more carefully. No one knows the time or day except the Father. In contrast to these, Jesus speaks of responsibilities imposed by the Master who left us in charge here. And I I invite you to look at verse 34. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Doing our assigned tasks, keeping watch. Our call isn't to passive waiting or to a fixation on prediction, but to an active faithfulness in our calling, even as we watch. We are to keep up with our assigned tasks, even as we pray, Come, Lord Jesus, come. I ran into another story about COVID-19 this week, not about someone suffering from it, but someone fighting it. While Canadians scattered all over the world were desperately trying to fly back home, Bev Caulfield did the opposite, she made urgent plans to fly into the eye of the COVID-19 storm. Now the white horse-born, salmon-armed, BC-raised former Calgarian is the Samaritan's Purse team lead for a 68-bed field hospital in the parking lot of a large hospital in Cremona, a city in northern Italy, just south of Milan. People here are just devastated. They're very sad, said Caulfield. 
They can't believe this is happening to them. What's very sad is you hear stories of people being admitted to the hospital and then they find out that one of their loved ones died at home or that there's no family who are allowed to come and see them. It's very, very difficult. They're sick, they're afraid, and they're often grieving from a great loss. Now, Samaritan's Purse airlifted its field hospital to Italy on March 17th using their DC-8 cargo plane, and with the help of the Italian military, erected the structures quickly. By Wednesday night, every one of their beds was filled with patients suffering from COVID-19. As a faith-based organization, we're here in, G- in Italy in Jesus' name, Caulfield says. We can pray with our patients. We read with them. We ask them to tell us about themselves and their family and how they're doing. They just want someone to talk to, she said. Isn't that interesting? An emergency organizer at Ground Zero in Italy is telling us how people suffering from COVID-19 need social connection. They need someone to talk to. Is that any different here in Kamloops? Whether you're suffering from COVID or you're self-isolating? I mean, few of us have the medical skills to help get someone on a respirator. But in a time of pandemic, we all have the ability to connect with others and find out how they're doing. We can write a letter. We can all pick up the phone. And that's good. Because while we all have different vocations, while we all have been assigned different tasks in life, we all have the calling to love our neighbors. May we be found doing this when the Son of Man returns in power and glory. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.